Hello and greetings to all my Mount Carmel students who are following this journey through the book of the prophet Ezekiel and any other folks who may have found their way to the podcast and are doing the same. It is now the seventh week of our spring quarter and I will continue to deliver these lectures this week and next week. Once I reach the eighth lecture in the spring quarter, I'll bring the spring quarter to a conclusion. Happily, it looks like our churches are going to begin to open and we are going to be returning to public worship. It will be a slow process and I didn't feel it prudent to push the effort to try to get our Bible class back up and operational since we would only meet for a week or two. So my hope, of course, as I've expressed before, is to anticipate gathering as a smaller group, as it always is, in August for my summer series entitled A Month with Moses, the Man and Friend of God. And then, of course, after a brief hiatus in early September, return en masse to our beautiful confines of McCready Hall to continue our journey through the Bible. So in just a moment after prayer, we will be returning to the prophet Ezekiel. And uh, with this lecture today, I'll also draw your attention to passages in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, respectively. I think you really enjoy the connection. Now, having said that, we need to, as always, begin our Bible class with the word of prayer. And so, gracious Father, as we do each week, we thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. Grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to invite you to find your way with me to Ezekiel chapter, 20, uh, chapter 35. And as I do, just a couple of announcements that I am going to remind you of. First of all, our planned trip to Israel is a go. In fact, the group is now uh, at half the amount of folks that can go. So we have another 20 or so spots remaining. If you're interested in that trip in October and you don't have the brochure in front of you, you can access it at the ArizonaBibleClass.com website by following the prompts on the left-hand side of the face page that lead you to travel opportunities, and then to executors, where you will find all the details needed to register. Additionally, I would like to thank so many of you who responded so graciously to my email uh, request for financial assistance. You know, we lost registration opportunities because we didn't meet together in the spring, and I count on the spring revenue to get me through the summer so that I can then begin my new academic year with the summer series. Well, I've been blessed 
to see the response of so many of you. And I want to thank you for remembering me in that manner. If you're interested in continuing to support and don't know how, again, you can always go to the ArizonaBibleClass.com website and just click on the newsletter and you'll see the issue that I entitled COVID-19 so that uh, you can gain access uh, to my address, that sort of thing. But having said that, I do want to thank so many of you who have been so generous, students present and past, right, who have stepped up and uh, offered their support. I am really and truly grateful. Now, we return to the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And by this point in the narrative, we know that Ezekiel is well aware that the armies of Babylon have marched out of that capital city and have gone to Judea and have surrounded the city and have captured the city and taken captive those that will be brought back in exile, also having destroyed the holy temple. And with that in mind, we return to this narrative that features the role of Ezekiel, a former priest who had been taken captive himself into Babylon in the year 597 BC in advance of the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in 586. And after four or five years as an exile, God has pressed him into service as his prophet in Babylon. While at the same time, Jeremiah, another of God's prophets, is alive and recounting and recording his experiences of Jerusalem as the Babylonians lay waste to the holy city. Now, we come to chapter 35. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet, Son of man, set your face against Mount Sa'ir. Mount Sa'ir is Edom, an ancient land founded by Esau, who was, remember, the brother of Jacob. Jacob and Esau, the story of those two brothers and their conflicts, well chronicled in the book of Genesis. And you're to speak against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, Mount Sa'ir, which means Edom, they're synonymous, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste, and I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. Why? Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you, because you are guilty of blood. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Sair a waste and a desolation, and will cut off from it all who come and go. Again, more reasons in verse 10. Because you said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will take possession of them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy which you showed because of your hatred against them, meaning the folks in Judea. And I will make myself known among you when I judge you. And then you shall know that I, the Lord, have heard all the revelings which you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid waste, desolate, they are given 
over to the destroyer. This means that in the region of ancient Edom and its capital located on Mount Sair, the Edomites cheered on the Babylonians as they laid siege and then eventual waste to the city. This is actually chronicled in Psalm 137. And I think I've drawn your attention to this before. A lament over the destruction of Jerusalem, which would have been a psalm that had been imagined to be crafted by an exile after the events of 586 BC, who now found himself in Babylon. So this would be a contemporary of Ezekiel and the prophet Daniel. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Remember, Zion is also Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors wanted mirth from us, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And then, here it is, in verse 7, Remember, O Lord, remember the Edomites on the day of Jerusalem. How they stood and cried out, Raise it, raise it, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastate her. Again, God's agent of destruction, the hammer he used uh, to pummel Jerusalem into submission. Happy shall he be who requites you with what you have done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock as the Babylonians did to us. So again, this prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 35 is remembered at that same time period in Psalm 137. You remember in our survey of the Psalms that only 72 or so of the 150 Psalms are attributed to David. One's attributed to Moses, and obviously Psalm 137, with no known author, must have been penned at the time just following the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians, 586 B.C. Now, we return then to Ezekiel chapter 36. Again, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel, and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. One of the important geographical points of reference that we'll lean into in our study of the book of Revelation when we arrive there one day is that uh, in Judah, Jerusalem is situated as a city amid seven hills. And we know some of them, right? Mount Moriah, the mount called Calvary, the Mount of Olives. One is called the Mount of Acre. Again, seven high points into which the city is set. So when you're prophesying against the mountains of Israel and say, Here, O mountains of Israel, you're prophesying to Jerusalem. And this is what you are to say in verse 3. Because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides, the Babylonians, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, 
exiles, and you became the talk and gossip of all the people. They were astounded uh, that you fell so dramatically. Therefore, in verse 4, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, and obviously to the ravines and valleys. There are three valleys that course north and south through the land of Judah, the Kidron Valley, the Tyrophian Valley, which dissects the city into two parts, east and west, and then the valley called ben Hinnom or Gehenna. So thus says the Lord God to the seven mountains and hills and the subsequent ravines and valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities, which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations round about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. In verse 5, I speak in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom as well, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt, that they might possess it and they might plunder it. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and the hills and the valleys and the ravines, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I speak now in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Enough is enough. I swear, in verse 7, that the nations that are round about you shall themselves suffer reproach. There'll be a price to pay for cheering on the Babylonians. But you, you, O mountains of Israel, meaning Jerusalem, verse 7, shall a shoot burst forth from your branches and yield your fruit to my people, Israel, for they will soon come home. Even though taken into exile, it will not end like the Assyrian conquest, wherein the membership of the ten tribes of the north are lost to history forever. No. In verse 9, Behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown again, re-inhabited. And I will multiply men upon you. The whole house of Israel, all of it, the cities, shall be inhabited, that is, in the future. And the waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and you will do more good to you, and will do more good to you than ever before. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, this is something the prophet Jeremiah also spoke about when he wrote a letter to the exiles, that this was not the end of their lives. There was going to be a time of restoration, and that promise is reiterated in the prophetic words of the prophet Ezekiel. In verse 16, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their doings. Their conduct before me was like the uncleanliness of a woman in her impurity, that is, during her week of menstruation. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood which they had shed in the land, for the idols which they had defiled it with. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. In accordance with their conduct and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that men said of them when they arrived as exiles in chains. Wait a minute. These are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But because I had concern 
for my holy name. My honor was at stake. My good name, God says, was being sullied, which the house of Israel caused to be profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, thus says the Lord God in verse 22, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but rather for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, has been shamed among the nations, and which you have shamed among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holy name before their eyes. For I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will reverse the shame and claim honor in my ability to do this. And then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and a new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take out your heart of flesh. I'm sorry, I'll take out your flesh, the heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to observe my ordinances. And here's the promise. You shall live in the land which I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. In verse 33, on that day, I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause the cities that had been decimated to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now inhabited and fortified. Then the nations that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and have replanted that which was desolate, I, the Lord have spoken, and I will do it. Now, we know that historically these events come to pass. We know that in 539 B.C., the first wave of exiles returns to restore and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem under the direction and tutelage of Ezra. But additionally, we know as well as recently as the turn of the 19th century in the late 1880s leading up to our own day that there has been a secondary fulfillment of this prophetic passage. And, and if you are aware of that and, and you travel with me to Israel, you'll often pick up hints of this from our guides who may or may not be religious in their practice of Judaism, but are very much aware of the miraculous rebirth of the state of Israel a state that has brought Jews from all the other nations around the world and given them a homeland. And that land, which had been desolate, had been a wasteland, had been a desert, now blooms like the Garden of Eden. And Israelis, modern Israelis, religious and secular alike, delight in the technologies of water management that allow Israel to become a, an exporter of fruits and vegetables to other countries around the world. And, and they do that with almost no water available, let's say, in comparative analysis, to Egypt and the superabundant amounts of water coursing down the Nile. That desolate land is tilled today. 
It's no longer a desolation. And again, if you travel with me to Israel, you will marvel as God predicted through the prophet Ezekiel in verse 35. This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now inhabited and they are fortified. So again, it's a secondary wave of prophetic fulfillment that you experience when you walk with me in the land. I never imagined that this uh, particular chapter would be a promotion for my next trip to Israel. But again, if this helps you gain traction in your desire to travel, then take a look at that trip. Because again, you'll see this prophetic word fulfilled yet once again. And that brings us to Ezekiel chapter 37. This may be the most familiar of all the chapters of the prophecy of Ezekiel, the vision of the dry bones. Again, the restoration, the giving and return of life to a people who had been taken into exile. A people who will have a heart of stone replaced by a heart of flesh and a new spirit placed within them. In verse 1 of chapter 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the midst of the valley. It was full of bones, and the bones were not buried. They're lying on top of the surface on the ground. Again, the victims of a military conquest, not given the accord and honor of being buried. There's a shame associated with those bones bleaching in the sun. And he led me round about them. And behold, there were very many of them upon the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, do you think these bones can live? And I answered, O Lord God, only you know. And again he said to me, Well, speak to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinew upon you. And will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, in verse 5, again, if you remember your Hebrew lesson from the first evening of our Bible class, the book of Genesis chapter 1, we remember that when we reached Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, we were introduced to a new name for God. In Genesis chapter 1, the name in English of God is the Lord or God, and it is translated from the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is actually a word which is in plural form, and this is interesting because it prepares us to understand at a later date the idea of the triune nature of God, one person, three separate natures, but that's a lecture for another day. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and following, we meet the Lord God. The Lord God, and in Hebrew, Yahweh, is that intimate way that the Jewish person of faith relates to God in juxtaposition to the name of God used when a Jewish person of faith is speaking about the Yahweh to a Gentile. And you don't introduce your God as Yahweh to the Gentile, you introduce him as Elohim, because he's the one who stands above nature and created all things at his command. And, and anyone, Jew or Gentile alike, can put their mind around that. But when we speak about God as our intimate Father, 
the God who loves us as a community of faith, we use the word Yahweh or the Lord God in translation. And that's what verse 5 is remembering. Thus says Yahweh to these bones. So these bones have to be the bones of Jewish men who have died trying to defend the city against the onslaught of the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, to shame them, have just left their bones to rot in the dry valley. But God says, I'm going to cause breath to enter into you. And so in verse 7, the prophet prophesied as he was commanded. And we read in the middle of the verse, there was a noise and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. And as I looked, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. And, but there was no breath in them. And so he said to me, so prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, the nephesh, that energy that God breathed into Adam, you may recall. I should just go back to that in Genesis chapter 2, which, remember, is not a second creation account, but rather is the creation account from the perspective of day six, which is the day human beings were created, which becomes the most important day, much like we would relate to our birthday as a day most significant in our lives compared to all the other 364 days of the year. So Genesis chapter two, after recounting in Genesis chapter one through Genesis chapter two, verse four, the seven days of creation focuses now sort of microscopically, perhaps, on the events of day six. So in Genesis chapter two, verse four, in, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, that is on day six. And we know that because it was a day when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no man yet to till the ground, but he's coming up. A mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And then, now watch, in verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And here it is. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That word breathe is the word nefesh. It's the life-imparting element that animates a person, right? The breath of God. And, and that's what the prophet Ezekiel is speaking about in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 9. Speak to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Ezekiel 37, verse 9. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet, and it was an exceedingly great host. And then he said to me, These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are clean and cut off. But therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, and raise you from your graves, O my people, and will bring you home into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken for I have done it, says the Lord. To be taken in exile is 
like dying. You, you've been extracted from your land. You've been forced into servitude. You, you have no connection to where you live now. It's as if you've died. And God says to the prophet Ezekiel, you will be brought back to life. And then the prophet is given another way of symbolically representing what's going to happen. Son of man, verse 16, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the children of Israel associated with him, and then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, meaning Ephraim and Manasseh, and for all the house of Israel associated with him. So the northern kingdom, Joseph, the southern kingdom, Judah, and then join them together into one that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not show us what you mean by this symbol, you say to them, that is in Babylon, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim. That's in parenthetical phrase because later folk would not understand the illusion. It has to be reminded them. But Joseph is not one of the named ten tribes of the northern kingdom. He's represented by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, the largest landholders in the northern kingdom. So I am about to take the stick of Joseph slash Israel and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah. I will make them one, that they may be one in my hand. And when the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all sides and bring them to their own land. Again, there is a sense in modern Israel today that this prophecy has once again been fulfilled. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. And they shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And then the promise of the Messiah, you see, my servant David, who's long dead and buried, shall be king over them and they shall have all of them but one shepherd. Well, it will be the progeny of David, someone from the family line of David, from the tribe of Judah. Jesus fits this description. And they shall follow at that time my ordinances and be careful to observe my statutes. And they shall dwell in the land where your fathers dwelt that I gave to my servant Jacob. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. When this happens in verse 28, then the nations, the Gentiles, will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst of them forevermore. Which is a promise to the exiles, of course, that not only will they return from their captivity, but they will do so to rebuild and restore the temple, which occurs and is completed in 5, 8, uh, 516 B.C. So this prophecy is so compelling because it's fulfilled during the lifetime of those listening to the prophet Ezekiel speak, but also has this feature of future manifestation, much like the prophecy of Isaiah to King Ahaz 
a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And when that son is born, it will mean that God is with us. Well, that prophecy was fulfilled when Mr. Prophet Isaiah got together with Mrs. Prophet Isaiah and they bore a son, right? Which was emblematic to King Ahaz that he need not worry about the Assyrians who would bring a child into the world when the expectation was doom, gloom, and disaster. Isaiah was saying, you have nothing to worry about. And that's why he got his wife pregnant or God allowed her to become pregnant. But then again, the prophecy was fulfilled a second time with the annunciation and birth of Jesus. So again, this is the idea of the prophecy's power over the course of time. Now, in chapter 38, we have a very interesting image to unpack. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So obviously, Gog is a geopolitical figure on historical stage in the time of Ezekiel. And he must have been the king of a place called Magog. We, we don't know exactly where that is, but again, we understand he's the king of that nation. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you forth and all your army and horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great company, all of them with buckler and shield, weighing and wielding swords. In his company, this commander is able to assemble forces from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, Kush, which is basically uh, the lands of Africa just outside of Egypt, and Pa'ut, which is also part of Africa. They're all with him, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer, also with all his hordes, and Beth-Tagorma'ah from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. Many people are with you. So, you're prophesying against a geopolitical leader who has amassed a force so formidable uh, that it stretches all the way to the south in Egypt and north of what is today's modern Iran and Iraq. And this force is going to be brought to heal by God. And that's the key. In verse 10, Thus says the Lord God on a day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages and I will fall upon a quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars and gates. My intent will be to seize, spoil and carry off plunder to assail the waste places which are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who have gotten cattle and goods who dwell in the center of the earth. Sheva and Da'an, the merchants of Tarshish, and all the villages will say, have you come to seize spoil? Uh, coursing down out of the north. What is your intent? Have you assembled, they will ask in the middle of verse 13, your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, and to take away cattle and goods and seize great spoil? Well, not so fast. Because at the end of the chapter, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, speaks about judgment. And the judgment will be on Gog, the ruler of May 
Gog, who desires to sweep out of the north and take out the newly planted nation of Israel that now lives secure in villages that don't need walls to protect them. And so in verse 23, God says, not so fast, King Gog, I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations when I take you out, and then they will know that I am the Lord. So speak out against Gog in verse 1 of chapter 39, says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel, and then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop from your right. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, and you shall, with all your hordes and the peoples that are with you, perish. I will give you to the birds of the prey of every sort, and to the wild beasts to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and then they will know that I am the Lord. So there will be a reckoning. And after that reckoning, in verse 17, Speak then to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come. Say, gather from all sides to the sacrificial feast which I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast upon the mountains of Israel where you shall, birds of every sort and beasts of the field, uh, carrion eating vultures and eagles and, and then animals that eat flesh. You see, this isn't a religious ceremony. This is to feast on the dead lying in the valleys below. You shall eat the flesh and drink the blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Basha'an. And you shall eat fat until you are filled and drink blood until you are drunk at the great sacrificial feast which I am preparing for you and you shall be filled at my table with horses and riders with mighty men and all kinds of warriors says the Lord God now that again is a call to the flying birds of the air and the carnivores of the earth to feast on the vanquished army that is a mass larger than any other imaginable with intent to take out the land of Israel and then, in verse 21, I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid upon them. Then the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward, and the nations, the Gentiles, shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, yes, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them, yes, and I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they fell by the sword. Yes, but I had to deal with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions. That's why I hid my face from them. But now, in verse 25, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, because I will be jealous for my holy name. I will do it because I am a God of honor and I cannot bear the shame of a people lost among the Gentiles ever again. Now remember, as I opened the lecture, I promised you that I would show you something quite remarkable. 
in Revelation chapter 20. And this is a chapter in the book of Revelation that has not yet been fulfilled. And there's a direct connection to it and to the prophecy of Ezekiel in regard to the assemblage of this mighty force under the rule and leadership of Gog, the king of Magog. Now, again, that would have been part of the prophecy of Isaiah, I'm sorry, Ezekiel, around the year 580 or so BC. So, effectively about 600 years before John's reception of the Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, we read that I saw, this is John the Apostle speaking, an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of a bottomless pit. There's a great chain, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years were ended. Now that period of imprisonment is currently the age of the church that we now live in. So the evil that exists in our world is possible because of Satan's minions doing his bidding, but their chief is under lock and key. But after that, and this hasn't happened yet, he must be loosed for a little while. And after I saw him chained, then I saw thrones, and seated upon them were those who, to whom judgment was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received the beast's mark on their forehead, they refused to think like Nero or Romans, or on their hands, they refused to act at the behest of Nero or the Romans. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, a thousand years, symbolic of a very long time. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God, interceding on behalf of the saints, and they shall reign with him for a thousand years. And they do. Those are the souls of the just who are with the Lord in heaven now. Now, when the thousand years are ended, and they will come to an end one day, Satan will be loosed from his prison to see if he has been rehabilitated. And he, having not been rehabilitated, will come out to deceive the nations, which are at the four corners of the earth, that is, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. He will repeat what Gog of Magog did 600 years earlier in assembling a vast army, larger than any had ever seen before, with intent on descending upon the church in Revelation chapter 20, as Gog of Magog intended to sat upon the people who had been restored to the land. Now, how large will this army be? Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That is a way of referencing the church. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Once Satan revealed what he intended to do, and the deceiver who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, by the time of the revelation given to John, Gog 
and Magog are conjoined and represent all the powers that one day will come together against God and his people, the church. But we have the confident assurance that when that happens and when that card is played, God will deliver us all. And that's good news. And all I have time to do with you today. Next week, we will finish the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Until then, never forget what a great student you are. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this lecture. Good day, be well, and God bless.